So now uh, it's been what seven years since the referendum uh, in uh, June of uh, 2016, and that shock, which I still recall, waking up early on that day to find out that the British public had voted to leave, um, and it's all it's it's just over three years since uh, Boris Johnson got it done. You know that 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 slogan that we lived with for so long. We're talking obviously about Brexit. And uh, looking at the state of the country today, whether it be economically, whether it be in terms of, um, you know, so, for so long we talked about social cohesion. We talked about harmony. We, talk, we talked about tolerance and we talked about... But it seems that British society is uh, divided across, um, across racial, ideological, political divides like uh, at least I, I can't remember. Um, the economic situation, the cost of living crisis is hitting millions of people, mi millions of households up and down the country. And it's creating a class system between the, you know, the, the, the rich, the, the ultra rich and the rest who, who make up about 80, 85% of, of society. I mean, I was reading in, um, I think it was the independent uh, only a, f a few months ago about the impact of the pandemic on British society. And one of the, uh, the criteria that they mentioned was that um, during the year and a half or two years almost of lockdown, uh, Britain gained uh, another 23 billionaires, 23 individuals who joined the Billionaires Club, you know, with almost 2 million people coming ever, ever so closer to the poverty line. And that, I think, is, you know, something that we need to pay attention to. What's happening in terms of that class system that we're creating. So Brexit and uh, what, what impact we're seeing uh, throughout the country, as well as obviously across Europe. It's, uh, it's something truly distressing, I would suggest. Well, I think it's been a catastrophic sort of case of self-harm, really. You know, and you can see... The ramifications for that, for society, as you've just indicated, you know, in social division, you have divisions between young and old and um, different faiths and different parts of the country. Um, and the geographical divide between, say, the north and the south, particularly London, and how London's perceived in, in other parts of the country. I think that's been really, really bad. It's been really toxic, all this Brexit for, as you say, for seven years. For what? You know, as you look at it now, you think, well, what's the, what, what was this ever set to achieve? And, and what is it achieving for this country now? It doesn't feel like it's achieved anything but division, our trades down, people are not coming to this country in the way that they used to. Um, I do some work with the European Network on Religion and Belief, We're trying to get some professors over here to look at the issues around migration and refugees. And we're organising something in Middlesbrough tough town in the northeast which voted very heavily for brexit actually um and people said we don't want to come to this country it's, it's not a very pleasant place you know they see all the imagery that's associated with our country at the moment uh, and i feel very sad about that you know say so, oh we can't even have to get the visas it's all very difficult mark so I don't know whether we're going to be able to do that piece of work in June. I'll just give you a practical example. So I mean, it's, I mean, not to sound flippant, Oliver, but we do now have uh, navy blue passports. So I guess we did get something out of Brexit. Thankfully, my UK passport is still European colour. And um, I have an Irish passport also, which... <laughs> I take pride when I travel. I can. Didn't we hear about lines of people at the Irish embassy trying to reclaim a citizenship because they had a grand or they had a? One figure I was heard was something like six million. As, so, as soon as as soon as Irish Brexit, Brexit was that, that, that's a great thing because it means that people feel European and they still want to belong. Um, I feel very sad for those who were drifting into Brexit without being aware of any of the consequences and the, not aware of the economic consequences, the social consequences. Um, and now I think we're being let down very badly because there isn't an honest discussion. They're trying to say we're in the mess we're in now because of the pandemic. We're not in the mess because of the pandemic. The pandemic just prolonged the impact that Brexit would have. Look at 600,000, is it? 
um, workspaces now for essential jobs in Britain unfilled and will go on unfilled because who wants to work in a country where you don't feel you're wanted? Who was it that said um, uh, in Parliament that said that thousands upon thousands of tons of crop of vegetables and fruits and the such went rotted and because they went unpicked because of the thousands who used to come to the country and be paid tippence every hour but but essentially get you know the harvest out of and and onto you know uh, the, the supermarket shelf. but look at what's going on at the moment um the nurses dispute and the hospitals and the nhs and the ambulance drivers how many of us recall the bus going around saying brexit will have I forget the 50 million a day or something, or something like. for the NHS, <laughs> total fictitious um, figure. But, you know, that deception. And now, how many of the people who voted for breakfast, or breakfast, <laughs> probably the <laughs> right oh, name. That. that would have been yeah. a better thing to vote for, actually, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would have, actually. Yeah. We're, we're without the breakfast now because of Brexit. Um, but but if if how many of those people honestly ask today, where is that money? Why have we been lied to? Why isn't that put into giving the nurses the right pay, supporting the ambulance And why drivers? isn't anyone held accountable for making that claim, that lie, as you put it? Um, and, and, you know, either at least being voted out of office, at the very, very least, but at most it's something that actually created the chaos that we find ourselves in today. I think the roots of our problem, Anis, and I'm giving away my age now, was in the 60s, 70s, particularly when we voted to go into Brexit, we had, when we voted to go into Brexit, it's on our, when we voted to go, to go into, into the EU, um, we made no preparation whatsoever. I remember the discussion then was, um, and I'm going back now to, I was in a parish in Islington, and the big discussion was, what's the model we build our society on? Is it the soup bowl or is it the salad bowl? And the whole, um, I thought, forward way of looking was the salad bowl because you, you allowed people to keep their identity. You didn't want this sort of assimilation where people lost their identity because in so, so doing they were losing what they could contribute to society. But I fear that was never properly worked through. And I used to be scandalized, really, by finding second-generation Polish, second-generation or third or fourth-generation Italians unable to speak their mother tongue. And it was because the parents or grandparents had felt, oh, we must assimilate. We must lose our Italian identity. We must lose our Polish identity. I'm mentioning those two communities because they're the largest. And so I remember in our school, we said, no, we, we've got to encourage the mother language of the children in the school. So we'd have Portuguese classes after school, Spanish classes, and then as the new migration happened, Tigray, uh, Tigrinya for Eritrean, uh, Tagalog for Filipino, so that young people could grow up proud of their identity. And, and in that way, they were contributing to the society. Uh, sadly, that model wasn't taken on. In fact, it was seen as a threat. You'd have to argue with teachers over it that, oh, they won't speak their mother tongue properly. So I, th I think we... we we joined the union without looking clearly at the implications for society and how we could help society to be enriched by being part of a greater communion than... Yeah, I mean, the, the, we must admit that there was a sense of being uh, threatened, to be overrun. I mean, that, that was the kind of sense that you got from the, the, the debate that preceded the vote in 2016 that we, uh, the country was almost under siege. The country was about to be, as, as one very close friend of, of mine used to say, we're, go we're going to be overrun by a, a German-French superstate. Uh, you know, those kinds of claims, they did take grip. How, though? I mean, how did, did so many people become so convinced of this? 
Well, because problem? well, political art, uh, lying has become an art form, isn't it? And we've got some really good political liars. You've got to admit that we've had, you know, Farage, we've had Johnson, we have Rees-Mogg. All these people are really good at lying and telling big lies. And you know, who said, you know, if you tell a big lie and you tell it often enough, it gets believed. Um, and I think it also though fits in with that kind of exceptionalism that we have as a country that somehow, you know, we've got, we got the word great in front of it. I don't think there are many other countries that do that, you know. And if you come into Stansted now, the big, the word great is actually huge. And Britain, <laughs> you think, well, hang on a minute, what sort of state am I living in? But the, it, it was about dividing people up, as I said earlier, um, into, you know, Portuguese, which is my heritage, who were picking the crops up in, 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 in the Fenlands, that's our breadbasket in this country and the Romanians and the Bulgarians and the, the Poles in the East Anglia where I live they were really contributing to the economy and, and to our food yeah. um, to you know having food now look at what's happened to the price of food yeah. look what the cost of living feels like for a lot of those people that were deceived by that and it was a great deception there's nothing to show for it is there for any region, for any class, for any ethnic group. There's nothing there. But as you rightly say, people got that storm going. We had a refugee crisis. We're going to have lots of refugee crises, actually, with climate change. There's going to be a lot of people migrating to survive. And we had a Syrian wave. You will recall in, was it 2014, 15, 16, that Farage, really, you know, with big posters, you know, it was all breaking apart. Um, because we had people fleeing for their lives, actually, yeah. that needed our care and protection. And that fed into that narrative around there being maybe a large number of East Europeans in certain towns and, and cities um, or whatever. And it kind of got that whole thing going. And we've had that kind of racist politics, you know, for but decades and generations. Me, it leads me to wonder whether uh, the, uh, the whole argument regarding breakfast uh, <laughs> Oliver, breakfast you've, keeps you've, coming you've, up you've, you've, you've now uh, uh, I've caught Sorry, it, I've caught it. Um, <laughs> regarding Brexit the whole argument what was what was the uh, the overriding theme was it ideological was it economic was it political what was it was it racial I mean what was it why I mean what drove the argument either for or against because I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating how we find that the impact of Brexit has been so severe, so severe. Um, I don't think that m many, I'd like to say most, but many of those who voted to leave actually considered possible. And that's why we have these sort of impressions that if we were to have a vote today, that the, the vote would be somewhat different. But what was, what was the backbone of the argument? Was it ideological? Divided society. I think the, the divisions in British society, and I think it, part of the roots were in the miners' strike. You know, if you go back to the miners' strike where vibrant um, villages and little towns and communities um, were, were suddenly ghost towns or villages and young people had to migrate from their... their, their to get work and so forth. And we never leveled up. We never took care enough of, of keeping a social cohesion in terms of economic equality and so forth. So th those who left behind, I feared, felt that the reason they were left behind, one, because the country had become a soft touch for scroungers coming in, forgetting that there were genuine asylum seekers, people whose lives were at risk and were risking their lives coming here. And secondly, the, the new workforce coming in, they were taking our jobs. Now, that, I think, opened the way for the liar politician to see the opportunity to exploit for their own self-gain. So we were taken over by opportunists. Um, you know, okay. I'm working for the country. No, I'm working for my own self-enrichment. And I think that, that a lot of the people, I don't want regulation. I don't want rules from Europe. The way I can get around these is to actually focus on the problem are immigrants, the problem are asylum seekers, and not looking at the facts that actually the people coming into the country were 
a net gain for the country. It was they, through their hard work, their initiative, all the new things they brought into the country, it was they who were providing the social security, who were keeping the national health alive. Look at when Brexit, when Brexit were, uh, when the pandemic hit, um, the number of, just focusing in, Muslim doctors, Muslim health workers who were on the front line in saving tens of thousands of lives. Prior to the reality, what were we given? Oh, they're a threat. You know, they're a, this is the, the I think there's, there's a, a period of accountability we should have when the statements and the programs and the articles and the media that were responsible for creating this sort of division, they should be held to account. And by the way, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that uh, Oliver mentioned the fact that, and, and, and I, I have it even on my Twitter feed, that the very first five or six health carers from doctors to nurses and the such were actually Muslim. Um, and uh, and you're absolutely right. We have tens of thousands of Muslims as well as other faiths and the such and minorities who hold up the NHS at a time when there are actual hammers blowing at every single side of it, trying to, to, to crush it to, 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 to nothing. Uh, and this, I think, is one of the untold impacts of Brexit. Uh, I, I'm. I, I recall during the 90s, probably the, the you know since Labour came to power in 1995, 1997, and for about 12, 15 years, we had multiculturalism as being something celebrated. Mm. We, uh, you know, we we were on the tube and seeing how uh, posters about how London being so diverse and so different, and that you know, we're, we're 7 million individuals and that we come from various colors and faiths and cultures and all of that. And it was to be celebrated. But then crept in the sort of line that actually multiculturalism is, ba multiculturalism is bad. And those who support multiculturalism uh, ought to be, you know, they should... They were the liberal their... metropolitan elite, yeah. weren't they? And, and, and it seems that there was a drawback from that and, and a, a creation of a totally different kind of atmosphere. And it, it was to be celebrated, but there was no effort to actually help it become what it could be. There was no plan. There was no policy to solidify it. It was to just, cement it. It was multiculturalism, where communities lived alongside each other without the level of engagement. We didn't create the community spaces. We didn't celebrate the differences. You know, we we talked about multiculturalism as if it was a mosaic or something. You know, everyone had to fit in to to a thing, rather than saying this is a wonderful city of and country of differences. And to celebrate that and the enrichment of society that it brought, we 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 lost that. Politicians just talked about it, but didn't implement it in the and, way and it could have been. Actually, fought it. Some yeah. actually yeah. went against it. Well, I think. I mean, I think that fits in with that exceptionalism that we have. Yeah, that somehow we're special. It, it relates back to empire. It relates back to how we see other people people with different color skin and different faith. It really relates back to that. And I mean, the weaponizing of anti-Muslim hate, which I think you've sort of touched on there, I think the conservatives saw that as really being a good vote winner, yeah? And you could, you could then segue that into refugees, because we talk about Syria, most of them were from Muslim backgrounds, if you look at that. A lot of refugees are, are fleeing countries uh, for a climate change from a, uh, from a Muslim perspective. So I think, I think they saw that as something they could weaponize. And then if you look at some of those northern uh, cities that voted very heavily for, for Brexit, they were very racially um, and uh, divided and, and divided on religious grounds. And I think some politicians from the far right have seen that, they've seen that route to some easy votes where you don't have to explain anything to certain constituents. You just do some dog whistling uh, and they're behind you, you know? And then, you know, so they didn't think through Brexit, did they? You, you know, you said, where is it come from? It was just a feeling. Maybe it was a howl of rage. Maybe it was a howl of confusion. Why, why is the country like this now? And I think, you know, if you go to, as I say, to places uh, like Burnley, 
or, or up in, you know, in those Lancashire mill towns around Greater Manchester. You know, what, you know, what's going wrong? And why has London got all the wealth or all the riches? Well, it's physically closer to Europe. It's got a different heritage. You know, you could explain things away. You can actually try and do things in a kind of thinking person's, critical thinking person's way. But they're not going for any of that. They're just going for scapegoats and making it easy. And they'll move on. Now we've, one of Sunak's five Five, it's unbearable, sorry, it's unbearable. Five things, important things, trying to stop a few people in boats, a few refugees risking their whole life. I mean, it just makes and, me and well the, up, you really, know, the, the that we've got... The statements of, of uh, the Home Secretary are absolutely yeah. despicable, despicable. You know, it's, it's almost like um, Brexit as being a second reformation. If you think pre-reformation the historical reformation you had europe united in the sense people could travel um church people went there here there, there was a united europe a sense of um community of whatever brexit broke that you know or the reformation initially broke that now post-war the horror of nationalism the horror of excessive nationalism brought people like Robert Schumach to see the need for some sort of principles where we could recreate a certain unity. Now, for my knowledge, they were very much shaped in Catholic social teaching and, and that the core founders of the European Union were people not just horrified by what they witnessed happening in Europe through nationalism, but also a vision that was based on justice, based on, on love, and based on openness, all of these qualities. Um, and they tried to shape the union on it. And I think that um, succeeded to some degree. I think as it expanded, we lost I mean, the idea as an idea was quite unique. The ideal was great. And, and, you know, central to their thinking was the principle of Catholic social teaching, subsidiarity. And that basically meant that the center empowered the regional. Instead of the center controlling the regional, you, you brought your resources together, your know-how together, so that you could actually enrich and empower the local. Um, now, in the process, we lost that. And again, I'm, I'm just, this is a way out thinking. <laughs> but, you know, as I reflect on it, I think in a way, what we started as the union expanded we saw the division in interpretation of law northern europeans tend to go by what i would say the letter of the law the letter of the law is to be applied southern europeans with a sort of more catholic interpretation of law it's the spirit of the law that matters so you could bend the letter to keep the spirit i i think these are issues that we we lost sight of and at the, the, at the very core of what we should be now, not as a European, but a universal society, a global society we have become. Well, oh, now we have the government saying we're going to, we're going to, we are going to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights. Yeah. I mean, I was in Brussels last week with the European Commission, and they've got an initiative called the Anti-Racism uh, uh, Agenda, and it's a whole body of work. Each of the EU countries has got to come up with an anti-racist plan. They've got an anti-Islamophobia coordinator. She's only just been appointed. You might want to interview her in the future. Um, they are really focused around tackling um, anti-racism, um, tackling racism, because they can see the threat this brings to all of our politics and to the way of life that we've that we've had as liberal democracies. You know, there are a lot of states in Europe that are a great threat here from this rise of the far right because of this rise of language, of division. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's, it's as though the, the kind of language that was used uh, leading up to the referendum in 2016, the language was something that we had, uh, I personally had read about the, the kind of language from, you know, the, river of, uh, the rivers of blood and the such from Enoch the 60s. And, yeah, yeah. and it, it was something that we read as though it was in the past and we as a society, as a collective, had moved on. But all of a sudden, 
we were hearing it once again. We were reading it as headlines in the, in the press. A home secretary. It, I, very much so. I Calling mean, it was government. It wasn't just the, those, the, you know, the nutters on the fringes. I, I recall, for instance, in around 2004, 2005, the British National Party, led by Nick Griffin, you know, calling out for all its members to come and, and march in Leeds. And something like 220 people turned out. It was nothing. But then only a few years on, that kind of rhetoric, that kind of narrative was winning votes, was winning seats in parliaments, not only in the in UK. Barclay and Dagenham, uh, you know, they won I mean, the... Uh, yeah, but ac across Europe. It's as though, it's as though, if I may, it's as though it was, you know, the first, the first sort of break in the dam. It was as though, you know, something was being held back, but all of a sudden, it's it allowed, it became okay. You know, it's it wasn't just the BNP. All of a sudden, it was government ministers. It was people who are daily on our on our screens or writing daily on on our you know newspapers. So it became okay, and for that, all of a sudden, we found this deluge of similar rhetoric and narrative, not only across Europe, across Britain, but also in, in, in the continent. What I find deeply offensive about her language and Priti Patel's and a number of others is, I think back to when I was 10, 11, I was brought up in this area, Acton, and I remember the whole Ugandan Asian crisis. And I remember people then having sort of racist attitudes. I remember demonstrations in the street saying we have enough Asians, keep them out. There was no way. They were protesting against the government of the day uh, bringing Asians in. They're going to create all sorts of problems. You know, and then South Hall was beginning to develop as a, and they said we have enough, we, do, we don't want more. Now, thank God we had an enlightened government that had a sense of responsibility for people, that put people's protection and humanity before any other concision, and welcomed them. And they came in and they protected us from the supermarket. They put the resources and know-how and everything into keeping small communities alive by running community shops, contributing to society in that way. I find it deeply, deeply disturbing that the first or second generation of those people is now the very people who are most vocal in saying we protect our borders, we exclude, we, we you know, I, I find it deeply offensive. What, what happens in the human person that you forget your roots? I'm, I'm an immigrant. I came here an economic immigrant at the age of 10 uh, to, to work through all of those challenges. I think I've contributed in different ways to British society and, and happy to do so. I haven't lost my identity. When the rugby play, I, I clearly you, am you a fail green, the cricket a green test. shirt. You feel, fail I, the cricket strange, test. Strangely, <laughs> the cricket test, I'm, I'm okay with English cricket because, you know, but, but rugby, no, I have a clear identity. But the point, and is, I think it, it's disturbing how and it happens to lots of migrant groups that you become assimilated in a way that you feel threatened by a new intake of a stranger. And I think that's one of the things we've got to look at in society. It's, it's horrific when you see it in our political leadership because you would think that people elected to office would go for the common good of society, would keep the the basic human values and uphold those values. And as Mark mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, really disturbing now, they're attacking the whole European court, which for many of us, see, we, we say thank God for it. Absolutely. Because it's a protection. Probably one of the most um, instrumental and important establishments that you know, was set up for, you know, for the last generation or so. It's, it's, it really is a horror, isn't it? I mean, you know, as, as Oliver's touched on, I mean, th this creation of, I call it like false narratives and then far-right extreme narratives. And we've had a takeover. I mean, the government's been hijacked by extreme right-wing people. I'm not really that interested too much about where their background is and the colour of their skin, but they are driving a very hard right agenda, which I think will 
be to absolute detriment of this country. And, is, is, and we're feeling that right now. And it's like the Daily Mail every day is writing the script for the ministers, isn't it? I cast my mind back, and we've done lots of work over many years on this, around integrated communities, for example. Um, and even with Theresa May, do you remember her? I mean, she seems like a, a wonderful, moderate Absolutely. human being now. Absolutely. She had a policy called the Inter Integrated Communities Policy, um, and they were working, because, you know, saying we need more social mixing between different uh, ethnicities and people from different religions. We need to not parallel lines, you know, in, in some of the cities you can get people living very distinct lives and not mis mixing, really, not in schools, obviously not in the mosque, not in the church, and bringing people together. She had a whole load of policies there and it was funded. There's a program called Near Neighbours that brought together churches and mosques and temples. So all that gone. It's all gone in the bin. There's nothing there. So there's not any government policy now that's actually trying to champion, as you were talking earlier about the values of community cohesion and being one planet and one society. It's all gone, and it's gone for ideological reasons. Mm -hmm. And as you say, some people are picking that up. In Europe, Sweden, we've got some fascists. You know, Italy, we've got some fascists. God knows what I mean, happened I mean, in France Sweden only, next time. Only, you know, something like eight, ten years ago, it was cast as, as probably one of the most open, one of the most liberal, one of the most welcoming and warm uh, nations in the entire world. All, all of a sudden now we have, uh, you know, a far-right government that's, uh, like Marx is saying, is, you know, hell-bent on, on trying to limit and restrict societies and communities, minorities, to express themselves, express their cultures, express their identity and religion. But uh, picking up on something you said, Mark, earlier about what's going on in Europe now, the anti-racism and looking into this, I, th I think, you know, we, 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 I hope to look at it in, in two ways. One at the level of individuals. Okay, how do you deal with individuals who either inherently racist or whatever? Um, and that's how do we deal with that as a society. But how do you deal with a government who promotes a different type of racism? Now, we're, on, we're told that maybe tomorrow or the next day the new prevent review will come out. And what has been leaked through the sort of papers that are promoting division is, I think, appalling. That it's going to stigmatize again four million of our British community are going to be stigmatized. They're going to be seen as fifth columnist. That's basically what, what this um, prevent whole thing, totally misconceived, but going to be endorsed, endorsed through what I would say hack journalism, someone with drive-by analysis, touch on this community that, take one or two perceptions and have endorsed a prejudice against. Now, I would hope that that will also be tackled. We can't talk about racism in communities unless we see it also in the actual, um, you might say, the deep state that is influencing our political life and influencing our media life and in fact shaping Britain in a way that's alien to it. As a, just sorry to, but what I really think what is lacking in the whole concept of prevent and what it has done in the years since it's been in, in, um, introduced is a total lack of what I would say British history and British values because none of them seem to be aware of the penal laws where the state presumed that it could come in and take over an individual conscience and if the conscience didn't agree with the national perception of what religion should be, orthodox religion, then worst you were hung, drawn and quartered or you were exiled or you were impoverished. You know, now it took centuries for Britain to discover that's not the approach. It took centuries for them to recognize there's a red line between government and government's responsibilities and a religious community, a faith community, and that in that there has to be diversity. We have, in the last 10 years, driven a horse and cart right through that, and now it's being perpetuated. 
and and I think we're lose instead of upholding British values, actually policies have undermined. And it's anti the evidence. It's it's anti intellectual, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of anti clever, really. But anti because all all the extremism is I've been touching on is from the far right. It's often lone wolves, as they call it. People, you know, people are just kind of confused and messed up. Those, those are the areas. But it, it, for that, for the government, they think it. You know, as I said, it's weaponizing anti-Muslim hate, and they they feel like it gives them results. And but and you have seen that in other European countries, in Austria, and the fantastic professor. You know, I'm sure you've had him on actually. Uh, yes, you know, hounded out of Austria, um, and and he does the 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 regular you know Islamophobia reports on across Europe. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, those, they know it works. So they don't even need the evidence for it. Um, so, I mean, I think there will be a lot of our colleague, you know, colleagues and fellow citizens that will be very, very upset if, that, if those rumours are true and they're going to perpetuate that kind of prevent strategy, which doesn't work. And it and it criminalizes or potentially criminalizes a section of the community. And it's it's I mean now we've touched on prevent and obviously this is a very big story. Where you know whilst we're recording this, we're still awaiting that the the, the reporter. To I come think out. there's been sufficient leaks through the uh, yeah, usual I, I've, channels I, to, to, to to see what a hack job as as you as you've put it uh, it is, uh, and and that's unfortunate because. Um, I think there could have been an opportunity to step back, to readdress the mistakes of the past um, 18 years or so. Um, I think that um, uh, what's been done is to the detriment of, of our, our society as a whole. I mean, the whole concept that uh, Prevent was built upon was to make society safer, was to make society more cohesive, to open up people to each other. Um, that was the, initially what was told about PREVENT. It was that kind of strategy. And therefore, the very first elements of PREVENT were supporting young boys' football clubs or, or you know, a girls' cricket team and the such. And it sounded all hunky-dory. But soon after, it became clear that it was about looking at particularly the Muslim community through security lens. So all of a sudden you have this large chunk of British society, which amounts to about 3 to 5%, being seen with extreme suspicion, with extreme trepidation. I mean, how could you, how could you function as a society, whether it be economically or whether it be politically, when you have that sort of wide and large section of society being looked upon in those particular lens. And, and the evidence is, just like you, you said, uh, Mark, that it's, it's, it's anti-logic, it's anti-smart. The, the data and the figures that, 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 that are clear that are produced by the Home Office itself every single year shows an increase in what they see as being extremism or fundamentalism or violence or terrorism even, year upon year upon year, which means that basically it does not work. It does not work. But there, And then came the review. And there was some hope, some hope, that maybe there would be a readdress of the very fundamentals that brought about this policy about the evidence that we've had over the past 12, 13 years, and maybe we need to do things differently. Maybe we need to find something else. But then we find that, unfortunately, the, the, the report we're about to see is a cementation of the same idiocy. And We've uh, got to, you know, was it get our country back? We've got to get our, our government and state back from these, this extreme handful of That's extremes. what we've got to do. I mean, just, just kind of a bit tangential, but it is important. You know, a lot of the universities, uh, Cambridge and Oxford certainly, got a lot of money from the, the European uh, Horizon program. They've lost all of that. It is an anti-clever, anti-intellectual uh, government, and they just pull those sort of strings. And I, when Oliver was talking earlier, I was reminded they got rid of all of those One Nation Conservatives. Do you remember it? Yeah. During this yeah, yeah, Brexit yeah. debacle, you know, the and Anne Anne Subris and uh, Damien Burke. Yeah, yeah, all the Nicholas all the kind of they would have been absolutely, yeah. you know, yeah. square with you yeah. in, in what, yeah. wanting to have a 
a, co a cohesive society that kind of worked, that recognised there were injustices and how do we put this right, you know? Um, a kind of Edmund Burke view of, of you know, of, of how you, you, you improve things, you know, kind of gradually and you learn on experience. Now we've just got, you know, right-wing radicals who tear everything up. Don't, don't examine the, or analyse the evidence and come out with tin pots sort of daily mail tropes yeah, really solution. but yeah. just picking up on Anis's comments on prevent um very early on before prevent took cold um we were working at creating better understanding for muslim communities and we had the slogan you know there shouldn't be an institution in the country where a muslim feels they have to leave their faith at the doorstep I mean, it was a picturesque way of describing what you were achieving. So there should be understanding that a person of any faith has space there to be and to function and to contribute. Um, now, that was picked up by the Home Office very early on. And with the communities, we established a program whereby we took um, sometimes 30, 40 um, civil servants overnight from all different areas of um, the civil service into the communities and they would stay overnight they would meet the communities they would learn about the faith it, william nye was um the the chief operator of this in the the home office at the time now william moved on a new person, Charles Farr, the late Charles Farr, and I speak with respect for him, but I think what he did was very damaging. We had taken about 400 civil servants into the community. We didn't take a halfpenny from the Home Office because um, Esme Fairburn Foundation was supporting our work, so we did it you know, as part of our, our work, and we wanted to be seen as independent. Immediately, Farr took over, an intelligence gathering element came in. And I remember having a real row in the Home Office with him on this and with his advisors, who I think were worse, you know, that they were endorsing this um, and saying, we can't work. And we had a letter exchange and I heard subsequently from someone in the House of Lords that his private secretary resigned or PA resigned because the person agreed with me entirely. But the point was that it was introducing intelligence gathering, and we said we can't have anything to do with this. Now, when Lord Carlyle was appointed, I felt, okay, we, we need to engage in that. And my colleague, Jordan Morgan, and myself, we went and had a couple of hours with Lord Carlyle, just giving him our experience and sharing stories like this, saying these are not anecdotal. We've picked up, we've had, I could give numerous experience where actually there was intrusion. And Carlyle said to me in front of the team, um, I promise you one thing, listening to this, and I was quoting prominent members of the Lords and, and the Commons that were involved with us. So it wasn't sort of just, oh, here is a spectator talking. He said, I promise you one thing, I will follow the evidence. He said, I'm a lawyer and I will follow the evidence, I promise you. Four days, five days later, we hear Carlisle is removed and a, a journalist is that with known record of what would be seen as um, Islamophobic comments or anti-Islam, especially with the record in the Charities Commission and look at the focus on Muslim charities. He is appointed. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I think it's important to get these things out there for the record, because this is what has been going on for so long behind the scenes and Thank you, Anis, for the opportunity we have with Mark here to talk openly about that. It's about how you and, reclaim and that truth. We isn't have it? to talk openly. Away from that political line and the deceptions. You know, going back to your original point, you know, how did Brexit, Brexit happen? Well, it was all based on a whole load of falsehoods and lies, which we're living out. And actually, it's our experience we're living out. You know, social care, haven't got enough workers because people from the European Union aren't coming. It, in farming, not in, you know, we've, we've got all these experiences 
we've lost the funding for universities we've lost the funding for social support in many areas the european social fund was a huge fund for some of our poorest gone all these things gone and so we're living this experience and we do not seem to have the political leaders to really galvanize that it should be a galvanic moment shouldn't it of saying look look at this mess this chaos that we've caused you know, it's like wait, you know, hands wait, up in the air. Wait for the real chaos to come. <laughs> what, what's the what's the what's the what's well, the scenario? Well, in a what sense, the IMF showing up well, any minute well, now? What we're, we're I often use this for you know we, we're obsessed with the crossing the road. We're obsessed with the mini car coming this way that it might run us over and forget that there's a big juggernaut <laughs> coming the other way. And it, it, it just seems to me that the inevitable of Brexit is the breakup of the United Kingdom. And I say that because I remember going back some years, an Irish um, government official saying to me, you know, Ireland had for 800 years been subservient to Westminster, to London, to the power, to the throne. And it created a sort of mentality, uh, you know, that if you're occupied for all of those years you you live with that mentality and Irish officials he said in negotiations never felt equal with with British um, but until the European Union came and he said suddenly sitting at table and realizing you had one vote that was equal to the United Kingdom, he said, changed the whole negotiation pattern that enabled the Good Friday Agreement. He said, claimed it would never be possible to have it without that psychological shift. Now, the point I'm getting to, what has always protected, the, the United Kingdom has always been at risk when the dominant partner dominated over the other independent countries, well, independent in the sense, separate nationalities in the kingdom, when one took dominance over the other. Did the United Kingdom vote to come out of the EU? No. If you look at Scotland, if you look at Northern Ireland, it was forced out. And if you look at certain cities, I mean, because I think the other implication of this, you know, you have Bristol and London and Manchester and Oxford and Cambridge, all full of young people who are very anti-Brexit and can't believe that the older folk, if I put it that way, out in the suburbs or in the rural areas have imposed that on them. You know, young people had freedom to travel, go to university. The world was their oyster. Now we've shrunk it. We've almost shrunk it. It feels like we've just shrunk it to England. If you're English and live in England, it's feeling really small and contained, isn't it? You know, almost like you're on this island and you can't get off. Um, and, you you know, I've, I've got a niece who, who wanted to uh, travel to the Netherlands to be with her, her boyfriend who's got a job over there. It's really difficult now, okay? She would have had the freedom of movement to do that. And now that, and she's going, what's happening? And I have to she's say, 28, by, the way, you know, by the way, I, yeah. I've, I've, I've traveled, uh, I mean, for the past, uh, since uh, the opening of lockdown, mm. I've traveled several times to Europe and every single time I'm standing in, in a very long line. Uh, and, and you know what? Um, I, there was a very, well, almost farcical incident where I was, uh, I, I was in Belgium actually and uh, at Brussels airport and there was this line that was never moving that we had to obviously join and there was an official making sure that you're you know you're carrying british passports stand in this line don't go through the usual you know european uh, line which was absolutely empty and accessible so we were standing there and then someone complained someone complained they said, what is this why are they treating us like this why and someone standing ahead of them looked back and said how did you vote in 2016 and both the man and his partner just looked down and said absolutely nothing. Everyone burst out in laughter. It was, it was a moment of relief of, and, and relieving that kind of tension that this is what you voted for. This is what was voted for. And you'll have to do some research into your background and find an OLP briefing <laughs> somewhere where you can. I, I heard the other day there's someone in America who's being 
some time looking into MacTurnan as a clan in the west of Ireland, you see, the Leitrim area in particular. And it, someone came up with the DNA, which said we probably were a black Asia Minor tribe, southern Turkey, <laughs> that migrated to Ireland 4,000 years ago. So, you know, it, it, what I'm saying is it's absurd when you think where we are But now. I think you get that Millwall in, uh, kind of tendency comes out with those sort of people. You know, everybody hates us, but we don't care. Yeah. There's a kind of tribe thing that yeah. suddenly kicks in. Because, you know, when you look at the statistics, I mean, it's still, was it 42% of people think it's the right you know, okay, there's there's now majority, but there isn't any chance of anything changing on that. <clears throat> and I think that's a big dilemma here, politically. We're stuck on this island, having made the worst decision ever, and it doesn't feel like we've got any way back or out of it. You know, you're going to be waiting in the longer queues. You know, you're going to have the trade problems. You're not going to have money for universities. You're not going to have people being able to come and work in the social care field, you know, for all these old people who voted Brexit anyway. So you think, what can you do now? Why is the And my heart bleeds what? every time I do this. I'm like, what am I doing? You know? Mark, why is the opposition not jumping on this? Why is Labour not you know, wagging a finger. Because they've at, never at, at been the truthful. I mean, I was in the Labour Party for 28, 29 years. I'll be honest with you there. I'm not, I'm, I'm not in that party now. I mean, I'm in the Green Party, been in the Green Party for quite some. And I just realised the Labour Party was never prepared to tell people the truth either, particularly its white working class vote in places like Hartlepool, if you're, you know, those traditional areas that would have always turned, returned a Labour MP. They weren't telling them the truth. And global capitalism is tricky. <laughs> Let's be honest, it squeezes people very badly. Um, and it does certain things uh, around the economy that have to be explained in a kind of intelligent, rational way. So I just don't think the Labour Party's got any wit about it at the moment, it seems to me, to actually challenge all of these things that we can see in our very, in front of us, you know, when we're trying to even buy our leeks or our cauliflowers and the cost of living crisis, you know, that presents itself on all these things. It's not there bashing away, telling people, look, we did make a mistake. We just have to own that mistake. We all make mistakes. We're human beings. We're imperfect, aren't we?